Greetings across whatever it is you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, composer, historian, educator, show producer, audience preservationist, and DVD label. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. If you subscribe, thanks for clicking on that link you saw in an email or on social media. Thanks for wafting in, however it happened. This is episode 33, recording and posting in the beginning of September 2019. Welcome. On this episode, uh, along with the usual recaps of shows that have happened in the last few months and highlights of things to come, we'll have a few different live performance recordings, one on piano, actually two on piano and two on theater organ. The two piano, actually is it's two clips of the exact same sequence played at two different shows one day apart to give you an idea of, of something I talk about in terms of improvisation versus composing. We'll hear a recording from uh, Capital Fest up in Rome, New York, uh, as a way of letting you hear uh, quick shifts in mood and a way to try at least uh, to use the theater organ like it's an orchestra and like a string section and another theater organ recording from the Library of Congress uh, talk uh, where I'll, I'll use uh, it as a way of discussing the importance of creating melodies during a show as part of a score what's happened lately well let's see since if you if you only know what I'm up to, from listening to the podcast, the last where I left you hanging at the end of May was that I was probably going to do another Kickstarter. Well, I did. Uh, the Douglas McLean DVD project uh, Kickstarter launched and was funded in about eight hours uh, and then continued to fund and fund and fund, which just meant that in addition to the two five rail features, I was now going to be able to add a two-reel film that Thomas Ince made uh, showing all the aspects of productions at the Ince Studios. And also, it means that uh, I'll be able to have the films stabilized and cleaned up and not just show you uh, the, the scans as they came out of the lab. Very excited about the project. Like the Alice Howell and Marcel Perez DVDs, uh, the Douglas McLean collection will help to fill out the landscape of, of silent film and silent film comedy. Uh, besides the slapstick comedians like Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd, there were comedians like Douglas Fairbanks, Douglas McLean, Johnny Hines, Reginald Denny, and other others like that, who made these light comedies that didn't have as much of an emphasis on physical comedy and slapstick, but were the things that people went to see while they were waiting for Buster, Harold, and especially Charlie to come out with another feature film. Douglas McLean was one of those people. Why have you never heard of Douglas McLean? Well, most of his films are they're either lost, they're in foreign archives. They just, like like in the case with Alice Howell and, and uh, Marcel Perez, they've just totally been out of circulation. They're not terrible. They've just, nobody has made them available or it's been difficult to make them available. But now that so many of us, you know, we have a lot of the canon of silent comedy film and, you know, there's only so many times you can buy a new version of the general. Uh, so you may want to expand your... Uh, your horizons, and that's what the Douglas McLean collection is all about. McLean made 22 or 23 starring features between 1919 and 1927. It was on screen, uh, you know, a few times a year for that entire duration. So you'll get a chance to rediscover him uh, along with everybody else. 
if you back the project, you'll get your copy sooner, of course. Uh, otherwise, you'll be waiting till the beginning of 2020 uh, to get your copy of the DVD. I look forward to getting to see this. In the other thing that happened in June is Mostly Lost 8, as always, at the Library of Congress. It's the annual film identification workshop where people from all walks of fandom uh, gather. 150, 60, 180 people gather in the Packard Campus Theater. We watch movies with the lights I guess the the house is houses at half. We've all got our computers and laptops out and calling out things that we see on the screen that look f- slightly familiar and try to figure out what the heck we're watching. It's gobs of fun. And if you've been on the fence uh, about attending and thought, well, I don't have nine PhDs in sprocket repair and on Eisenstein's uh, use of lighting, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, A lot of the times it's just mundane things like license plates on cars and calendars on the back of a set and what style dress or shoes or uh, hairstyles we're seeing that help us identify a film, what year it was made, where it was. The flora and fauna will help us determine if it's Florida, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, New York, New Jersey, or California. So... If you're on the fence, get off the fence and and come on down. Uh, And one of the things uh, I do, by the third day, Saturday afternoon, we're all a little punchy. We've been watching all these things that start abruptly and end abruptly. And our brains are just constantly working and grinding away. And uh, I I, uh, try to do something I never do in a regular show. Never do in a regular show, which is to play a piece of recognizable music to make a joke about what's happening on screen. You know that's like kryptonite for me. Absolutely never do it. However, it mostly lost me a little punch by the, by towards the end. Uh, a few years ago, we were uh, having a session of films, uh, unidentified films from Lobster Films in France, and a Hallroom Boys comedy comes on the screen, and the uh, plot line involves a gambling a game that involves a four-sided spinning top with different uh, symbols on it uh, that put and take and something like that. And that actually was the name of the film. We figured out it was a film called Put and Take. It was a popular game. The spinning top looks a, looked a lot like a large dreidel to me. And so in Real 2, when Percy and Ferdy, uh, the two Hallroom boys, uh, were involved in a big chase down the streets of Los Angeles... I used the dreidel dreidel song as chase music, and it got a laugh um, because we're just like I said, we're just punchy as heck. Uh, this year, uh, and it doesn't always happen, but sometimes I kind of look. Oh, is this? Oh, can I do something here? And this year, something happened where I wasn't really thinking. Almost within a split second, this happened. We were watching a large slew of one and two minute long. Uh, 9.5 millimeter films, actualities, nature films, uh, travelogue things. Uh, and there was a huge uh, cache of 9.5s from, uh, I'm going to say Portugal, but I could be wrong, uh, that Cal Curran won on eBay and gave to the, you know, sent into the Library of Congress for a scanning. And Cal is one of the teenagers who comes every year for the last bunch of years. Um, and as much as it was, uh, it was tough watching all of these things. But it, you know, good for him finding some stuff. And you just never know if you're going to find something that's lost. One thing that was interesting was that a lot of the films did wind up being identified as actualities and Pathé early Pathé releases and stuff like that. So the afternoon is is going going along, and we're all a little tired, a little punchy, and there is a nature film. About a minute, minute, two minutes long. About caterpillar, and it you know goes makes a cocoon and hibernates or whatever. Then uh, through a title, we are informed that it is now breaking out of the cocoon and is now a butterfly. And as the cocoon cracks open and the little bottom end of the butterfly starts to wiggle free, I swung into a piano rendition of this. <laughs>
yes, The Stripper by David Rose, also composer of Holiday for Strings and many other instrumental hits. It got a big laugh, big laugh, broke broke the tension that we had been baking in the room, and it was a, a, a moment of fun. Please don't do that at a show. I would never do that at a show. This was a special case scenario where... It's just, it was just don't do it at a real show. Don't do song title puns. It just makes fun of the film and calls attention to this wonderful joke you've come up with. Um, song title puns were done quite a bit in the silent film era, but our audiences of today, our musical tastes are very different. And when you do it today, it tells the audience, don't take the movie seriously. It's silly. I did a couple of shows in... Uh, June that were literally back-to-back, one of them in the Adirondacks, one of them in my neighborhood. Uh, The Park Theater in Glens Falls, New York, was opened in 1911, and it's a cute little theater. Uh, It was purchased by someone in the community and refurbished uh, the, I guess you would say, the shell of the building, the outside guts of it, are really pretty much look like what it looked like when it opened. The interior uh, is more of a refurbishment uh, for current use. So uh, the downstairs area is now a restaurant, which I hear is quite good. Uh, the lobby may not look exactly like it used to. Uh, and the theater, while it does have the original proscenium and stage, uh, the balcony uh, was removed. Uh, the raked seating is not there. However, this does mean that the theater is now becoming a cultural hub and gathering place for the community uh, because of the multi-purpose nature of it and because there's a big screen and good video projection and good audio and lighting, you can have a rock concert, bingo night, uh, uh, community meetings, uh, business meetings, wedding receptions, uh, movies, uh, uh, you name it, it can be done uh, at at the Park Theater. And they wanted to do uh, a program of Charlie Chaplin comedies. Uh, And I took the opportunity to program three mutual shorts uh, to show and accompany and present at the Park Theater and then exactly the next day at a place called Dorot, which is in the Upper West Side. So, uh, you know, I played this thing. I went up to Glens Falls, uh, played the show, stayed overnight, got an early Amtrak back to New York City, uh, put on my other black suit and went over to Dorot and did that show. The shorts I chose were uh, The Rink, The Cure, and The Adventurer. Uh, It's hard to pick from the 12 mutuals, but those are three real solid uh, crowd pleasers. And these were the restorations, which we licensed, as one does, uh, from Flickr Alley uh, for the screening. There's a reason I picked that show to do twice in a row... And I'll discuss that in a little bit later on in the episode. One thing I'm, I'll play for you now uh, is uh, I'm going to play a recording of my performance at the Park Theater and then the next day at road of the exact same minute and a half from the rink. Now, one of the questions I get at shows a lot, along with the ubiquitous, was that the original score? And... Don't your hands get tired? Is when I talk about improvisation, uh, people say, oh, you mean if we turned the lights out and ran the film again, the music would be totally different? I always say, yes, it's not going to be note for note the same, but my intent is always the same. The way I treat a scene, the, 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 the mood and the support I have for the scene is almost always exactly the same. Because uh, that you know the scene, the film doesn't change. So what I'm going to play for you now is a sequence from the rink. 
um, that starts, and uh, it's from real one. It's it's the moment where Charlie the waiter is waiting on James T. Kelly and Henry Bergman, or shall we say Henriette Bergman. He's in he's in drag in the scene, and uh, it's the moment. It starts with Charlie is sharpening his knife and he slices a hair with it. Uh, there's the business with where him flipping the chicken. Uh, twice there's business with an, an egg that's in, that comes out of the chicken. He fights with the other waiter played by John Rand. John Rand is ejected from the restaurant by the maitre d' and then we cut to the skating rink. So here's what that sounded like on June 5th. Okay, live in performance at Glens Falls, New York, at the Park Theater. Now, here's the exact same sequence. I, I lined the two tracks up with the video. It's the exact same sequence. Again, you're going to hear uh, Charlie is sharpening his knife. He slices one of his own hair hairs with it. Does the business where he flips the chicken once and twice at Henriette, Henrietta Bergman. Uh, there's the business where he's tapping the chicken and egg falls out, lands on Kelly's face. The fight with waiter John Rand uh, happens again. Rand is ejected from the restaurant by the maitre d', and then we cut to the skating rink. Here it is in performance at Dorote on June 6th. for note the same are they uh, the intention like I said is always the same you can hear the shifts happen when we go from one a bit of business to the next uh, but the idea is always the same the support is always the same in July I was at the Ambler Theater 
and at the Central Pennsylvania Festival of the Arts. Uh, at the, the Festival of the Arts, I played for the Kid Brother, uh, the new Blu-ray of the new restoration of the Harold Lloyd film. But at the Ambler, we did something fun. And I've talked about this before because I've done this before, which is we uh, I played for Sunrise. And uh, while we could have gotten uh, a DCP, uh, they're big on running 35 millimeter at the Ambler when they can. And the other reason I wanted to run a print of this film is so that we could run it at the speed that F.W. Murnau wanted it to be run at, which is 100 feet a minute or something that approximates 27 frames per second. I've written about this on, on the blog, uh, so search for the background on that there. And I, if you've seen my undercranking talk, I speak about that uh, as well. But there's an article that was in Variety that Kevin Brownlow tipped me off to that, that talks about Murnau insisting that the film be run at that speed. And his expectation in making the film was that it would be, would be run at that speed. And so uh, projectionist Jesse Crooks at the Ambler Theater, we could have just run it at 27 frames per second, but he got out... Uh, equipment that allowed him to do this and calibrated the projectors so we were running the film at literally 100 feet a minute which is just a hair under 27 like 26.66666 the audience probably didn't know the difference um it was what was remarkable about the the show was that it poured like crazy just before we started and we still had a pretty much a full house of people uh and it's really nice to see that kind of community support for an art cinema or a weeknight show of, of Sunrise. I happen to think the film plays better at this speed. That's that's me, and I, I want to honor uh, what what Mr. Morneau uh, intended us to see. I also played at the, at the Strand Theater in Scroon Lake, uh, which I this is my third year in a row. It's a great little theater. Uh, opened in the 1920s, got refurbished to some degree in the 30s, uh, owned by uh, uh, the Rossi family for a few decades, uh, run by another concern, another pe- a couple of people for a little while, and then uh, Larry McNamara acquired the theater and has been running it as a seasonal venue. Uh, basically, they open uh, Memorial Day weekend and run movies all the way through Labor Day. But it's a great Art Deco theater, great community support. We had a really nice turnout uh, for the program of Buster Keaton comedies. And they have a piano there, like an 1890s upright, well-maintained. And, and, and uh, uh, Larry recorded my scores, and I will, I will include some clips from that in the next episode. I've spent July recording a score for Little Old New York. Uh, the Marion Davies film, uh, Ed LaRusso, uh, I've lost count of how many Kickstarters he's done, more than me, uh, but he kickstarted this project. Uh, the film was scanned by the Library of Congress from Marion Davies' nitrate print, which they have preserved. I got the screener of it and set up the organ and recorded a score for it. That includes the two songs uh, that Victor Herbert uh, commissioned no, it's. Am I thinking of? I'm mixing it up with when Knighthood was in flower. It's just the one song, um, "Little Old New York." I uh, used it at the, for the opening titles. Uh, a, a mo- there's a moment where probably in the roadshow version of the film there would be an act break, and I use it there and again at the closing titles. Um, it's uh, an interesting film musically, and I've blogged about the challenges of scoring that film. So go to Silent Film Music dot com slash blog and just search for little old New York there and you'll see uh, what what I what I had to say about the challenges of, of scoring this I mean there's a there's a number that Marion sings very deliberately um, and so that we're we're meant to see that she is singing this particular song uh, so worth reading uh, I recorded scores for the two Douglas McLean features as well as for the uh, studio tour short uh, and uh, I found uh, this time that going bit by bit and not trying to bash away at a full you know reel or two at once uh, seemed to work I mean the films are a little bit episodic anyway and 
uh, it seemed to work and uh, help with my sanity uh, in terms of uh, what it goes through my my brain when I when I record. Uh, recording is difficult. Recording is difficult because at a show, it's your score to some degree is ephemeral. No one's going to think of it that much after the lights come up. They're not going to hear that exact score again, at least the way I work. Um, whereas when you record, it's there and it's there forever. And not only that, but when you watch a, a silent film on a television set, whatever size set you have, because of the size of the screen you are watching, the sound is larger. And so you're, I find that I'm even more aware of the score that way. Um, so uh, I typically, it takes me quite some time to get the first take of the first chunk of the film uh, done without hitting lots of clams and being really uh, just mistaky and upset and frustrated. <laughs> it's not it's not easy. And eventually, it, it's kind of like uh, starting an outboard motor. And eventually, once you pull the cord enough times, it, it, it the motor catches and you can continue on for a couple of reels or a couple of sequences and it goes fine. But it's not easy. Uh, and because, because I can, I try to get it right. And do the best I can anyway with it. Um, well, let's, let's move on uh, to Capital Fest. And I'm going to play for you a live performance clip uh, recorded at the Capitol Theater in Rome, New York. Now, I played for a couple of films, one of which was Helen's Babies, a film with baby Peggy. Edward Everett Horton, and a very young pre-flapper, Clara Bow. Uh, and I also played for a film called Kentucky Pride by John Ford. Now, I played for it earlier in the year at MoMA. It's been restored digitally. There's a new 4K restoration that MoMA has done that looks really, really wonderful. Uh, at Capitol Fest, they showed MoMA's 35mm print, which it's, is also quite good. And again... Uh, uh, at Capital Fest, the the idea is if we if there's a print we can show, uh, I, I'm assuming that that's why they went for the print, um, and there, then there is a good print. Now the the thing, about, you know, this is the thing about sight reading a film. I had played for this film at MoMA and I had not had a chance to see it ahead of time, and I do not know how this happened, but somewhere about a third of the way in. There is a horse race. The film is about a horse, and the story is told to us through intertitles from the horse's perspective. In the middle of this horse race, okay, um, I'm just going to say spoiler alert, there is an accident, and the horse goes down. Now, I don't know how I absolutely nailed that moment, and uh, by nailed, I mean played it as if I had already seen it because I did not know it was coming. Usually if there's an accident in the horse race, it's much later in the picture. But I remembered that for the next time I played it, which was at Capital Fest. Uh, so the the two things I want you to hear are the, the abrupt shift that I'm able to do and uh, how I handled that panic moment. I don't know if I would handle it exactly the same way again, but uh, instead of doing a sound effect and uh, leaning into the reeds and making a big scream, I w went more for shock and panic when it happens. And then what follows uh, is uh, something I'm trying to do. Trying to do? I don't know if I always do it all that well. I'm trying to play less and trying to use the theater organ more like it's an orchestra. The instrument was created to be like an orchestra. They were called unit orchestras. And uh, taking a cue from Lee Irwin and the way he would play for films to treat the instrument like it's a, it's a bunch of strings and some reed instruments and not like it's a keyboard instrument. I don't know how well uh, I did on this, but during the ensuing minutes after the event... I tried to come down low uh, for the the mood uh, of of everybody in, involved dealing with the sadness of what has happened uh, to the to the horse and their concern for it. So here, live in performance, 
with my Zoom H2N at the back wall of the theater under the balcony. Clearly, as you'll hear, not the best place to put it. Here's about four minutes for my score for Kentucky Pride. in performance at the Capitol Theater in Rome, New York. Yours truly accompanying Kentucky Pride on the Capitol Theater's original installation, Molar Theater Pipe Organ. You can see what I was trying to do, and at the very end you hear a, a melody come come through. And that's something I try to do. Uh, not, I'm, I'm always trying to find a balance of, of just basic underscore and uh, creating melodies in 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 when I when I'm scoring and doing playing, um, and not do something that is uh, as someone I hear once said of my playing years ago uh, was like uh, wandering all over the keyboard. Um, I try to create melodies where I can. I got some tips on doing that. Uh, from Lee Irwin on how to create a melody and uh, I try to follow through on the melody. In other words, uh, instead of playing, starting to play a melody and after a bar and a half move on because something else is happening where appropriate to continue and finish that melody. And if I can play it uh, again, if it fits the scene, 
uh, I'll try to do it. And if it's something that I'm cre- I'm creating that's that is going to become the love theme, I've got to, as I'm playing it, I watch my fingers or hear it in my head and try to remember the intervals and the chord progression. So if something is, uh, uh, I I don't have a degree in music, so I I don't know all the uh, th- music theory nomenclature for the dip- different intervals that well, but I try to remember you know, going from one one note to this note and the distance between the two notes and what the next one is uh, and and that being the hook of the melody or whatever it's called uh, so that when I need it again, I can pull it out of my ear and, and, and use it. But it is something I, I, I try to do where appropriate. There are places where uh, a melody can be distracting uh, from, from the action, uh, but... Like I said, I'm always trying to strike a, a good balance uh, of doing it. I don't want to wear out the melody. That's the other thing you don't want to do is uh, create a melody and then play it over and over and over and over so that it becomes recognizable by the middle of reel one or two or even three. The idea of trying to trying to deliberately craft a full melody where 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 there's room for one, uh, where the structure of it. Um, you know, the 8 or 16 bar structure of it uh, works. Like I said, I'm not always able to do this. Um, I mentioned a couple uh, earlier that I had programmed the adventurer deliberately as a repeat. And and part of that was because I, as I always do, uh, almost every single year I create a new score for the Boise Philharmonic's Chamber Orchestra. Chamber Ensemble, excuse me. And uh, this year, I was considering doing a score for Charlie Chaplin's The Adventurer because the the Adventurer with Charlie Chaplin was the very first score for orchestra I'd ever composed, like 20 years ago, maybe more. And I have found every once in a while... When I play for the adventure on piano, I try, as I do with other shorts that I've scored for orchestra, to play the orchestral score. And I had noticed that when I would try to play my score for the adventure, as close as I could remember, it just didn't work anymore. It just didn't feel right. Um, Parts of it seemed repetitive. There were themes I wrote and underscore that I wrote that is just wrong, wrong. Uh, it was fine for uh, for for me uh, 20 years ago when I was commissioned to write it for the New York Ragtime Orchestra by Masanobu Ikemiya, um, but I, I my scoring chops have changed quite a bit, and so I I I two nights in a row actually three because there was a at the Park Theater the night before our show for the general public we had a an event for the local historical society where I played for the adventure and the rink and they had a dinner and speeches and that sort of stuff. So there's three days in a row I played for the adventurer and checked in with my gut. And by the, by even, I think even before I got to the show at DeRote, I was like, yeah, I got it. I got to retire this score. So, uh, I am, uh, in the, in the process of creating a new score for the adventure that'll have a world premiere in February in Boise, Idaho. On the topic of melody, I want to play a clip from a live performance at the Library of Congress for a film called Beverly of Graustark and stars Marion Davies. And this three or four minute recording, uh, again, with the Zoom recorder at the back wall of the theater, uh, will give you an idea of my attempting. I'm not going to say, oh, I did this. You should listen to this and do what I do. Uh, I gave it a shot. I don't know how, how well it came off, but of trying to create full melodies uh, as underscore uh, and shifting uh, keys um, in tandem with uh, the dramatic action or dramatic shifts. Uh, you'll hear me shift keys a couple of times here and there. And I'm quite sure that uh, it was in response to a new dramatic idea coming into the into the storyline. So Beverly of Graustark is one of the it's it's 1926, so it's after things like When Night Who Was in Flower and Little Old New York and Janice Meredith. Uh, 
it's a costume picture, but less emphasis on the costume and a little bit more on the comedy and the fun. I understand that Irving Thalberg had his thumbs in this production, um, perhaps more so than usual, whereas William Randolph Hearst was overseeing things. Uh, it's a great film. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's one of those, hey, you look just like the guy who runs this country switcheroo plots, except that the way it gets set up, I have not seen done before, because usually somebody goes, hey, you look just like uh, 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 Adnoid Hinkle, or or whatever, but uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Try and go see this uh, this film. I know it's showing in Porta None. I just did a show of it at the, at the Library of Congress, and I'll be doing it again at the Cinema Arts Center. Um, because it's and the the idea of uh, substituting uh, Marion Davies for Creighton Hale, you know, instead of having Marion Davies play two parts in a split screen, I mean, she, you know, you butch her up and she kind of looks like Creighton Hale. Um, anyway, here's a few minutes from my score, uh, trying my darnest to create melodies as part of an under, underscore scheme uh, for Beverly of Graustark.
live in performance at the Packard Campus Theater of the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia. Yours truly, playing the Walker Digital World, sir, accompanying Beverly of Graustark. And I, I'm pretty sure one of the melodies you hear in there uh, became uh, the love theme for for the film. Uh, and when I say became the love theme, uh, there was a scene where... Uh, Marion meets, and I think it's Antonio Moreno, and uh, starts to fall for him. And being the first moment when they they connect, uh, I created a, a melody and reacted uh, in my head. Oh, that's kind of nice. I better remember that, and then did my best to bring it back around two or three other times it's needed. I don't like to beat it to death, but there there's the love theme, there are three or four distinct places where it goes in any feature length film. And so that's that's what I tried to do with that. Now if you were wondering, and if you've been wondering for the last forty six minutes or so, what the heck was that music at the beginning of the episode? Uh, either just out of curiosity or or if you were somebody who grew up in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area in the 70s and, and have always wanted to know what that piece was. I'll tell you, it is a piece called The Philanderer by Bertram Strawley. And it's taken from an LP done by Arthur Kleiner, who was MoMA's first silent film pianist. He made that album in 1967, along with another album called Music for Silent Comedies. That record was needle-dropped to death on a television program on public television here in the Tri-State area, Channel 13, a show called the Silent Comedy Film Festival that was put together by a guy named Herb Graff, along with William K. Everson and Walter Kerr. Uh, there It was like a one or two hour block of comedy shorts uh, well-known comedians and lesser-known comedians um, I have a very vivid memory of a midwinter break from elementary school when everybody was out sledding and I was inside watching Billy Bavan comedies but I heard there's that that tune heard it over and over and over uh, and and I have a copy of this LP uh, I will close this episode. I'm still trying to find a good theme for this show, and I'm, I'll get something. I'm going to close out this episode with another track uh, from that record called Gaiety by Domenico Savino, one of my favorite of the Mood Q composers. Uh, what I have got coming up on the horizon, uh, I'll be at the Alamo Draft House on September 29th, accompanying the new restoration from Lobster Films of Our Hospitality. Um... I'll be at the Silent Clowns film series uh, this fall in September, October, November, December. Uh, we are showing films uh, starring uh, female comedians, our leading ladies of, of the silence. So in September on the 14th, we're showing It with Clara Bow. Go to silentclowns.com to see our lineup. We do a show every month. On September 18th, I'll be at the uh, Cinema Arts Center doing a program of Arbuckle comedies uh, introduced by Steve Massa, whose book on Arbuckle's films will be out at the end of the year. I'll be at, at Bard College uh, playing for the crowd and the cameraman. On, so this is all on my website. Go to silentfilmmusic.com slash shows and you can read all about it. There is going. The reason I have Arthur Kleiner on the brain is that there is going to be a very big series at MoMA when it reopens on October 21st. They have not posted the programming, so I'm not going to tell you about it just yet. But get on my email list and you'll find out what's showing and when I'm playing. Don't count on social media to find out. Get on my email list. Uh, because of the algorithms of social media, uh, it may not think that you are might be interested in something, and it, it'll hide it. Uh, but if you get my emails, you will find out what I'm playing for, where, and when. Go to silentfilmmusic.com slash email to get on my email list, and when you sign up, you get a little bonus. You'll find out. This has been 
the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell, episode 33, recording and posting in the beginning of September 2019. The music you've heard is all copyrighted by yours truly, Ben Modell, all rights reserved. Remember, there is no such thing as being able to say, why wasn't this advertised more? If you go to a classic film show and there are lots of empty seats or more empty seats than you think there should be, then do something. As fans, it's up to us now. We have the tools through our email lists and social media to spread the word and be part of the ripple effect. If you see something on Twitter or Facebook that you think is interesting, don't just like it, repost it and retweet it. Be part of the ripple effect. If you retweet or repost things, send people links or forward my emails to people, you're helping to spread the word. It's the only way for this sort of thing to happen, and it's very important. Soapbox moment over. If you like what you're hearing, uh, you can buy me a cup of coffee. If you go to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash Ben Modell, you can buy me a cup of coffee. Thanks for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast. I look forward to seeing you at one of my shows. If you feel like it, put a review on on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and uh, continue as you you have come up to me at a show and tell me you've been hearing the podcast. It means a lot to me, and I'm so glad to share what I've learned and what I know with you through this podcast. Thank you so much, and I'll see you at the silence. Silence.